The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Love news, but find keeping up a bit overwhelming? Well, Newsable is the answer. It's your daily fix of everything worth talking about. I'm your host, Imogen Wells, and in about 15 minutes, I'll bring you what you need to know from Aotearoa and around the world and explain why it matters. Newsable tackles the big stuff without taking itself too seriously. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa, and welcome to Business is Boring. There's the old truism that you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond. Today's guest has responded to some of the biggest setbacks you can receive with optimism, openness and generosity. David Downs started out as a comedian, got into IT, grew to very big roles at Microsoft and then received news that he had a rare cancer and less than a year to live. He shared that journey through a stuff column that helped him land a spot on a new clinical process trial in the States that led to him going into complete remission. From there, David's gone on to help New Zealand tech exporters at NZTE and is now CEO at the New Zealand Story Group, the government agency that helps grow the New Zealand brand worldwide. He's an author of great books about Kiwi innovation, co-founded the SOS business voucher idea that was a lifeline to small business early in the pandemic, and works in governance and giving back to the tech sector and cancer support. It's a great pleasure to have him join us today to chat his journey, the role of optimism and positivity and a sense of humour and success, and what's next. Thank you for joining us, David Dallas. Oh, kia ora. Tēnā koe. Nice to see you. Thank you. Hey, so nice to have you here. So, you, you know, like um, like that intro, you know, you've, you've built and you're building this fantastic career of, you know, so much change and doing so many new things. Tell me about that start in comedy. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, like how that led into kind of being, I suppose, on the business side of comedy and then out of comedy. That's right. I mean, it's funny you say building a career because it's really been a loose collection of activities that now, in retrospect, you sort of paint some kind of structure around. But uh, And that includes the early comedy days because your point is right. I was a stand-up comedian, not a very good one, um, but back in the day, none of us were particularly good. This was the uh, late 80s, early 90s, and um, realised that you know, being a stand-up comedian was good fun, you know, but you spent a lot of time on stage in front of uh, audiences and in smoky bars back then and realised that actually the, the real game was probably to own the bars and the restaurants and the and the clubs and venues that we were part of. And so some friends of mine and I uh, rather naively and foolishly decided that we would set up our own comedy venue. Um, so I'm making a very long story short, but, but essentially we went from being, um, you know, aficionados and, and professionals on stage, professionals in very inverted commas, to suddenly owning a, a restaurant or a bar you know, and, and not really knowing what we were doing, frankly. And because I had been to university and studied computer stuff, I ended up being the money guy because I knew how a, a spreadsheet worked. It was not much more qualification than that, actually. And, um, yeah, and that, and that became the classic, or is the classic, still, still going 25-plus years later, still going strong on Queen Street. Um, but yeah, that was that was sort of the transition, as you say, between uh, being a comedian and then being a, in the business of comedy. Yeah, and we we love talking to um, Scott 
thinks about the process of turning oh, really? yeah. a, um, a, a porn theatre <laughs> into an institution that's yes. still going. There's and, a lot of cleaning involved. Yeah, that's such a cool story. <laughs> and then, and then out of out of that world, you, you know, you kept a hand in it for quite a while. But then, what led you into kind of starting your own businesses? Yeah, well, back there, so that was yeah, it, what would have been 1995 or something, and. I um, was running, helping run the, the classic during the you know during the week, and realised that you know, a we were starting up, so it wasn't really going to pay a lot of people's wages and stuff. It was basically a, it's a very small business or was back then, and so needed to do something else. And I because I um, studied IT at university, I hadn't actually graduated by the way, just just for full um, transparency. I'd found much more interesting things to do. I went off and became an actor, um, but I'd studied IT, and um, my friend a friend of mine and I thought, oh, let's set up a little IT company because this is back in the day when this whole thing called computers might actually take off and this this idea that we heard of in the distance called the internet we thought maybe something will come of that after all and so we set up a, an IT company at the same time I was I was kind of running the classic so because this is just as Scott was joining actually and I was sort of the the sort of chief operating officer in a very grand title um, and set up this IT company at the same time in the same building because we had a you know we had an office space so and that and that went gangbusters that IT company went um, became very successful over about three or four years we we started um, we hired a bunch of people cleverer people than us and wrote software and yeah and because it was the sort of mid 90s it was all a bit weird and new and you know we didn't really again didn't know what we were doing um, I'm a big fan of um, throwing yourself into something and learning by doing. Um, again, retrospectively, um, putting some logic around what I've done in my life, um, but it went really. It was it was a hugely successful time and lots of fun, you know, just just learning all the time. And out of that, you went into Microsoft uh, out of a couple of kind of mm. you know IT uh, kind of roles and stuff. Hey, yeah. tell me what what that was because that was when Microsoft was the biggest yeah. story in tech in the world. There weren't kind of five big tech companies. There was you know uh, IBM and and, and surging, right. surging Microsoft. There was, and um, yeah, it was interesting because that jump is probably the bit most surprising. And you know, when I look back, I go, "How the heck did that happen?" I ran from went from running and being working in a, a small fledgling comedy venue and having a little IT company of my own on the side, which was, you know, 10 people and uh, and then suddenly um, into Microsoft, which makes it sound very grandiose. In fact, there was a little step in the middle. I actually, my, my wife and I moved to Ireland and we lived in Dublin for um, a while, for a year or two. And what we, the reason we did it is because my family's from Ireland, so I've got this Irish heritage and I, w- I wanted to kind of go back to sort of my papa and learn more about that. And worked there in Dublin at the time of the Celtic Tiger. People probably don't remember, but in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was this tech boom that happened around the world. And the Celtic Tiger was what it was known as in Ireland. It was a time when all the major tech companies moved their operations to the tax haven that is Ireland, and <laughs> frankly, and um, and I managed to to score a job with one of them, which was in the sort of area of um, innovation and stuff. And after doing that for a year or two, um, that's when I, you know, got sort of tapped by Microsoft to come and join them back here in New Zealand, which was which was a lot of fun. So, but it was a real big step into, and that's you know, to your point about this podcast business is boring. I went from going, you know, running a stand up comedy venue, da da da, being a comedian, to suddenly working for a massive American corporate and thinking. Oh, I better be grown up and serious now, you know. Like I have to wear a shirt to work and <laughs> do buttons up, and and I thought I better not be that comedy guy anymore. I kind of thought I would leave all that behind me and be very serious and boring, but it didn't work out. It that didn't. Way. No. It didn't work out that way. Got no. myself. <laughs> and and by by embracing who you were in those kind of spaces, um, yeah. yeah. Like do you, do you, do you stand out, and does it help you grow more? Because you ended up in. Some really big roles yeah, in Microsoft, I did. Hey? like like the Asia Pacific area. Against all odds, yeah, yeah. It was funny because when they hired me, I've get, I, I love telling this little bit of the story. For those people out there who get worried about having to have a a career plan and b the qualifications or even knowledge to do it, I, I'm here to prove you wrong because. A, I didn't have a plan. I just sort of, it was a cool opportunity that cropped up. B, when they interviewed me, the exact question they asked was, "What did you study at university?" So I could quite rightly say, I studied computer science. Now, I hadn't actually graduated in computer science, but that wasn't the question. <laughs> uh, and I don't ever sort of advocate lying, but I was pretty open with them that I actually never finished my degree, and I was more of a sort of learn-on-the-job type guy. Um, and in fact, it was only 15 years later that I actually got a degree. Um, but, but yeah, in Microsoft, what I discovered in big corporates and many organisations 
um, kind of opportunity presents itself all the time, and this is sort of one of my life things actually, is that you're constantly seeing uh, and being presented with opportunities, and um, and through so through joining. Microsoft, they put me on management training programs, and I learnt more. And then suddenly things would pop up, and I'd go, oh, "I could probably do that," you know. You know, how hard can that be? And found myself. I was there for about twelve or thirteen years, actually, in the end, doing lots of different types of jobs, and um, yeah, really, very much scars on your back way of learning. Um, but so amazing to work for a large corporate and learn processes and systems and ways of working and culture and all that kind of jazz. It's great. Yeah, and at the time as well, where Microsoft, and it's still to a large degree um, is, was um, the kind of uh, lingua franca of business, yeah, you was, know? Yeah. It was like it was the backbone of every single kind of corporate environment. It was, yeah. We were, um, yeah, when I landed, we were just, we had just launched um Windows XP, I think it was back then. So yeah, no one will remember. But anyway, and, that, and, and then it went through this sort of really interesting period because Microsoft hadn't um, was it had grown so incredibly quickly, and hadn't always done things completely right. Um, and in America, they they had this thing called the consent decree, where people might remember Bill Gates was hauled in front of Congress and given to, the same sort of thing that happens very regularly with tech companies. Um, and and because of that, there was these sort of antitrust allegations, all this sort of stuff. But what it was, it was amazing to be in a company that was going through that kind of stuff because we had to grow up. The organisation of Microsoft went from being almost a, a very large startup to being a very um, sort of button-down corporate in the sort of 10 years that I was there. So I witnessed it going, you know, almost quite a complete culture shift, actually. Not always for the good, I have to say, because when I first landed, it was all do the right thing and, you know, make up the rules as you go along and, you know, let's just all be successful. Too much more rules and structure and discipline. There was good and bad about that. Um, but I guess the parallel with that was me in my personal life and career realising that after a year or two, I was realising that the more kind of relaxed I was, the better I was doing. You know, as I say, when I first went in, this goes back to your business is boring. If you see business is boring, you'll be boring. Mm. And therefore, the stuff you do will be safe. You know, you'll be very kind of grey. You know, don't stand out. And that's what was my first strategy when I first arrived, I think, for a few years. And then I realised that actually, nah, the more I sort of just make a bit of a joke every now and then and be creative and do some of the stuff that we used to do when we were doing comedy and, and improv and stuff, the more that's actually appreciated and liked and, um, yeah, it got to the point where I realised that, you know, my, my career was sort of, you know, proportional to how much I was actually being myself at work, which was quite surprising to me. Yeah, and it worked out very well the Ooh. more you were yourself. Like, um, exactly. Some very big roles. Exactly. And then, then at the end of that, like if someone was to land on your LinkedIn, and, and something I think a lot of people um, would know you from uh, through the way that you chronicled the story through a column and stuff, yeah. you took some time out to battle a cancer diagnosis. I did. Well, that's that's when when I was at NZTE actually, because um, when I when I was at Microsoft, I was living in Singapore in, in the last few years of my Microsoft career. I was in Singapore, and then I decided I wanted to come back to New Zealand. Well, me and the family, because I had I have um, three boys and my wife and I, and we decided we'd come back to New Zealand. But I felt like I'd done the tech thing. I thought I you know I've worked in tech companies now for twenty something years, all in the private sector. And I approached actually, or, or got introduced to NZTE Trade and Enterprise, and came back to New Zealand and and um, took a role with NZTE, which I've just, um, I think it was ten years I was there. So I loved that, and that was a, that was another sort of thing I was not qualified for, supremely unqualified for, going into government, um, suddenly working with ministers and and you know politicians and other government agencies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I had to navigate my way through that. And after, yes, after about five or six years of doing that, I suddenly got this completely unexpected cancer diagnosis. Um, see, that wasn't in the career strategy either. I hadn't planned for that. Mm. Um, but that, you know, took me off in all sorts of cool different directions that um, uh, almost reaffirmed my kind of life beliefs in a funny way, but also um, changed the way I thought about, you know, what it is you do all day. What were I'm those? Poor, I'm poor tending now. I'm just giving yeah. them foreshadowing. <laughs> what, what were those, those life those um, those those life approaches? You know, this idea of um, positivity and optimism yeah. and kind of sharing sharing the story. Something that I saw that you'd written was that on the day you got the diagnosis, you decided that you would share the story. Tell yeah. me about that. Yeah, it was a sort of, I mean, clearly unexpected and a bolt from the blue. And I, because, I mean, the, the very quick version of that was I'd, I'd been feeling a bit under the weather for quite some time, like, you know, just fluey, coldy symptoms and tired and that sort of thing. 
but put it down to just being run down, busy at work. Uh, and then it was months, months goes by, and then finally I went to a, the doctor, and, and they said, oh, I think you should do some more tests. And I went into hospital, and they did some tests, and then they came out and said, actually, you've got cancer. And it was, you know, from thinking I had the flu and being a bit run down to suddenly, you know, a few hours later being told it's cancer, by the way, you've had it for quite some time, you're going to have to stop work immediately, you need to get into hospital. It was a really dramatic <laughs> way to, like a wake-up call. Um and many people, you know, when you hear people who go through this sort of thing, will talk to you about this kind of moment of, you know, um, your life changing overnight, and and it absolutely does. But but it, for me, it felt like a, a, um, I went into this next phase of my career almost. It felt like another job that I'd taken on, which and the job was to, you know, get better from cancer. But that did take a. Um, it was a big battle, and yes, to your question. The day I got diagnosed, because I was on my way to work, I literally had my laptop with me and I was sitting there thinking, okay, this is like, how am I feeling? And I started writing about it. And I've always been a writer. I've written books and stuff through the years and, and you know, obviously as a comedian and, and, and TV and stuff. And so I started writing about it and I sent it off. I should have sent it to the spin-off, clearly. But <laughs> I don't think you existed. Oh, no, I know. I think you might have. Anyway, I, I sent it off to um, some friends who worked at Stuff and said, do you want to publish something like, you know, a... a person's experience going through cancer who's never done it before and, you know, all the strange things that I was going to learn. And, and we did, and it was awesome. And, and it became a really big column um, for them. That, you know, we had thousands and thousands of people reading it every week and, and sometimes twice a week, depending on how I felt. And it, that was cathartic for me, at first of all, being able to tell, you know, the story. But also, as a comedian, you kind of just look at things a bit differently and you, you notice things in a different way. Um, so it gave me a kind of a creative outlet. Um, but also it, it kind of gave me a bit of a sense of purpose as well, but it's something to do because it's blooming boring going through treatment in hospital all the time. There's not a lot to do. Um, and, and I hadn't probably clocked at the time what that meant, what the consequences of being so public meant, you know, like writing about it and sharing it um, publicly through the through stuff suddenly exposed us, you know, as a family to lots and lots of people's input and wisdom and most of 99.9% of it was fantastic so I had no problem with it but it was it was sort of an unconscious thing really and you approached it with such positivity and optimism but in the early stages the prognosis wasn't uh, the ending to the story that you were writing yeah. wasn't wasn't looking that good no, was it it wasn't and it got it got rapidly worse like from being told it was cancer then to being told it just a few days later actually it's a particularly rare one and it's not good and then oh my gosh you know the treatments aren't quite working the way we wanted and yeah it went horribly wrong there for a while um but it, you know th- that uh you just got to roll with that you know it, i didn't i just had to follow the you know the kind of directions of what the doctors were telling me to do and um, as much as I could. One, a big part of that for me personally was keeping my kind of spirits up and positive and being focused and not getting kind of too um, self-pitying. Although there's always moments, you know, everyone's going to go through moments of doubt and concern. Um, but it, but it, it, by writing about it, it gave me that A, creative outlet, as I say, B, lots of people like coming back and giving me validation and saying thank you for sharing and it's great to read your story and all that kind of stuff. So in a funny way, it was um, it was quite a weird, t- exciting <laughs> and, and worrying time. But it, it gave me a, like a, a funny thing. My wife would, because Catherine, my wife, was with me almost all, the whole journey, every step of the way pretty much in every appointment. And any time something really bad happened or if I had a test that was particularly difficult or something like that, she'd say, this will be good for the blog. You know, <laughs> I'd be going crying out in pain because someone's just stuffed a massive needle into my hip to get a like, bone marrow and she'd, be, she'd lean in and go, this will be good for the blog. <laughs> and it's like I start laughing and then it hurts more. It just became like a, a, like a cool thing. And so that, that little phrase of just turning something from being a negative into a positive, even though it's a tiny, tiny shift, of being able to say, like it got to the point literally where you start looking forward to some of the weirder things because, oh, this is something new to write about, you know, mm-hmm. having a PET scan. Never had one of them before. You know, you forget that the reason you're having a PET scan is because they're trying to work out if you've got metastases and stuff, but you start writing about it instead, you know. So it was a kind of a, a different, you know, mindset. And that action ended up actually linking you up with... Yeah. A drug trial. Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ultimately, it was such an amazing thing. And I'm lucky to be able to step back and tell the story 
and I do do quite a bit of speaking to other patients and, and to corporates and stuff about it because it is an amazing thing. So getting sick and then writing about it led me to sharing my story constantly. And as this thing got worse and worse and worse, I was sort of being very open in those columns. I, ne- I never held back, um, sometimes to my detriment. Um, uh, but most of the time worked out pretty well. And and it happened to be, what the th- well, it turned out to be the thing that saved my life because my column was being read by people all around the world in the end. You know, I'd written, you know, about 60 of them. And this guy from a drug company in the US, from Pfizer, the um, big American pharmaceutical company, happened to read it, literally. Um, his, his name's Mike. I know him quite well now. He's a good mate. He, But I didn't know him at all then. He was a complete stranger. He had been to New Zealand on holiday years ago. He loves New Zealand and he reads um, stuff and, and spin-off. I'll tell him to read spin-off. Anyway, he reads it all the time. And, and he happened to just glance down and see my column, which was called A Mild Touch of the Cancer. You know, so it's like a slightly funny um, take on it. And he read it. And then he read it every week. And he shared it with his mates and his, and his family and stuff. And one day he just decided, hey, I'll, I'll send a note to this guy. And he found me on LinkedIn you know, three steps removed and sent me a little message saying, hey, I've just, you know, I've read your column and if I can ever help, let me know. And it's, he, wrote, he wrote a really beautiful sort of message that went along with it. And so it was this incredible kind of linkage and coincidence that got me to meet Mike um, by being open. So, you know, I'm now like, I'm, I'm a big advocate, I suppose, for sharing problems and asking for help because that that connection was literally saved my life. He connected me with people that were in a, a drug, running a drug trial or it's not actually a drug, it's a, it's a process, a, cl- a clinical process. And I ended up having to go to Boston um, for this treatment. So, yeah, it was a really strange set of circumstances and coincidences almost. And we'll be back in a moment to hear from David Downs how this experience changed his approach to life and work and his work at New Zealand Story. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Kia ora, Duncan Grieve here, host of The Fold. Recently on the show, I spoke to Beef and Lamb New Zealand CEO Kit Arkwright about the negative perceptions and realities of the agriculture industry, what beef and lamb means to New Zealand, and whether we can address climate change without giving up our beloved red meat. It's a fascinating chat, and you can find it in the regular feed for The Fold right now. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Welcome back to Business is Boring, where we're talking to David Downs, CEO at New Zealand Story. So tell us, how did that experience of, you know, building a successful career, building a family, everything going to plan, this incredibly challenging, um, uh, having the news that it was terminal, going through a process that meant that you got into remission. How did that change your approach? Oh, not at all. No, not at all. No, (laughs) what are you talking about? No, it is funny. Because you... You've just encapsulated my entire life in about 12 seconds there, Simon. That's quite insightful. Um, it is interesting. I mean, you talk to lots of people and you hear, you know, speakers and others who talk about these kind of amazing life experiences and shifts and changes and stuff. It's a shame in some ways that we have to go through, we humans have to go through those kind of massive shifts to kind of gain some sort of introspective, you know, self-understanding uh, uh, or whatever. Um but that was an amazing experience. That two years or so, it was about two years of battling cancer um, from the day I was diagnosed to sort of the day that finally, you know, we were really clear that it was probably over. It was two years. And that, um, I, I say regularly, I would never want to do it again and I don't wish it on anybody. But boy, I'm glad it happened in a strange way. Apart from the impact on my family and friends and everyone like that and the concern and worry. It was an amazing experience because it sort of was two years worth of really digging deep into what makes you tick and what are you here to do and what's important in life and all that sort of stuff. And for me, I have always been a complete optimist. You know, like I, I'm, I said earlier, my parents are Irish. Um, I think it comes from 
the Irishness in me, you know, like we're optimists, um, have to be because it's miserable weather in Ireland, so you have to look forward to something. Um, and I um, and I came to New, well, my parents came to New Zealand and had me, and then I had the benefit of having an Irish parentage, but being brought up in New Zealand and living in this beautiful multicultural society and learning um, about optimism and positivity from you know the people around me. So I've always been like that. This experience of having a couple of years of really facing your kind of worst case scenario and going through really painful and difficult times and real complexity built even more optimism into me. I'm like, I'm off the charts now. I'm a terrible project manager. Don't ever ask me to do anything. <laughs> I was just thinking today's the first time I've ever carried an umbrella, I think, in about 10 years. And that's only because this morning they were saying, it's an apocalypse, there's going to be a massive thunderstorm. And as I was walking out the door, I went, oh, maybe I should take an umbrella then. You know, Because like, normally I go, ah, it'll be fine. And lo and behold, I'm vindicated. It's not even raining. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, that optimism and positivity is like really reinforced in me. Um, but also this sense of kind of purpose and sense of wanting to do things that have make a difference. Uh, and again, maybe that just coincides with going to sort of middle age and, you know, getting past 50 and realising that actually, you, you know, you've, you, your work time, let's not talk about life, but you've got about 20, 15 to 20 years more of working time, what are you going to do with it? You know, so, um, so that's it for me. It sort of reinforced some of the things, some of the trajectory I was already on in my career. Uh, it's reinforced that that was the right thing to do, but it's also kind of given me a sense of urgency about it, I suppose. Yeah, because it looks like from the outside that you managed to do an awful lot, yeah. you know? Like, oh, you've been talking to my wife. <laughs> She's constantly saying, I'm doing too much. No, no <laughs> like, if you're delivering value and you're enjoying everything, like, it's not too much, is it? Yeah, but, you listening, Catherine? But, Listen <laughs> but, that's, but you know, that, that's a real choice, isn't it? To kind yeah. of, like, pick up, to pick up those things and decide, you know, I've got this limited time, you know, yeah. and a real appreciation of how limited time can be. Yeah. And to, and to choose to kind of pick up and run with all those things. That's right. Tell me about some of the things, because, you know, we'll get into um, the, the New Zealand story in, in a minute, yeah. um, which is, uh, you know, you know, such a cool thing thing to be to be part of. But you've also got a lot of governance work on, yeah. uh, writing books, charity uh, stuff, charity yeah. stuff, like, like stuff, stuff to help other people who are going through cancer journeys. Yeah, there is a logic behind it, by mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. Like, I do have this sort of framework in my head that I think, you know, can I make a difference? Do I find it purposeful and, and impactful? And do I like the people? Hmm. And if it fits those three criteria, I'm usually in. So, you know, for example, um, when I came back from being really ill and had and publicly, you know, got into remission through this amazing clinical trial of this incredible um, gene therapy that I got on, um, I got approached by a cancer research institute in Wellington called the Maligan Institute. And, the, and they are we're, unbeknownst to many New Zealanders, we have a world-leading cancer research institute here in New Zealand who look at immune therapy. They asked me, I went down and visited them, toured the labs and stuff, and they said, we've been reading all about you, but we sort of held off talking to you because you're you know, going through what you did. But now that you're out, would you consider being an ambassador for us? And so that was like the first step, yes. And then, and then I went, what does that involve? <laughs> After I'd already said yes. And they said, we're not sure, but we'll work it out. But part one will be, let's raise some money to try and get the treatment to New Zealand. And so, so I said, yeah, sure, let's raise some money. So, so that was the first thing. I was like, that gave me this real, okay, cool. It wasn't just about me getting money for me selfishly to go and save my life, which was awesome, of course. But it was also now I had a purpose that was bigger than that, which was great. So we raised a bunch of money for them, helped get the clinical trial that they wanted to get off the ground running in New Zealand. So that was, a, that was amazing to be able to, and then through that met patients and met other cancer su sufferers and stuff, and continue to almost every day now sort of talk to other patients and things, and and always very happy to, because it goes back to that sort of experience I had with just some guy off the internet went, can I help you? Mm. Well, now I want to be that guy who's helping other people, and it sort of works out pretty well. Um, it, it's also incredibly valuable for someone who's been through the system. Yeah. As um, we, 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 we have some high, high health needs in our family and we're very well connected and we're very yeah. good communicators and we're very confident communicators. And we have a real time, time, you know, difficult time yeah. navigating things. And so I always think, gosh, you know, what if you come from a culture that doesn't question authority? Exactly. Or you have English as a second language. Exactly. Or you're not a confident communicator. Like, how do you navigate these it's systems? It's a tricky, tricky one. I mean, it's, I think about that quite regularly. Actually, without um, being—I mean, maybe my whole sort of life—I'm not—I'm not a big sort of <laughs> um, uh, person that thinks about the fatalism. But when I look at my career and my and all the experiences, it led me to be the exact right person to get that. Like even my son, who was like at the time he was about sixteen, he went, 
um, he was talking to a t- TV person and they said, oh, how do you feel about your dad getting cancer? And, and Josh said, oh, he's the best possible person to get it. Like, <laughs> Thanks, mate. And he went, no, no, I mean, like, you know how to travel, you can really confident porking, you really, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, and even the Maligan Institute people were going, thank God the person, the first person who got this treatment wasn't a truck driver from Gore or something who mm. couldn't talk to people because I can just go out and talk and no problem, no disrespect to truck drivers from Gore. But, but, but I do think about that privilege and mm. then the responsibility of that privilege. You know, the privilege of me having had a life and a career and uh, just walking through life in, in my skin gives me privilege. I've got to be really uh, cognizant of that. But at the same time, it gives me responsibilities. And so I really see that heavily as my responsibility, therefore, is to share what skills I have. Mm. And I do talk regularly with people who would who were, are just bamboozled by the idea of going to another country for medical treatment or can't work out how they're going to articulate to their doctor what's going on or can't understand what their doctor's really telling them, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. So that that feels, yeah, like a really purposeful, valuable thing to do. Yeah, and giving back to the tech sector in terms of the work that you've done with oh, high-tech yeah. awards and the like. And, you know, like like there's a real, um, I mean, you're kind of like mid-career for, you know, uh, leadership yeah. in, um, in, in tech kind of businesses. And then to make that jump also to go into public sector, yeah. which, I don't know, if you've been regional director of Microsoft, um, you can probably walk into any extremely well-paid, you know, tech job with a whole could. lot of equity in the world kind yeah. of thing. And to choose to kind of take a path into public sector and, and make an impact there uh, is a real conscious choice as well, I think. Thank you, Simon, for noticing that some of us who work in government actually make a deliberate choice. I find it quite funny because I did make a deliberate choice. Like I I think I, no, not not being arrogant, but I took a 50% pay cut the Mm. day I left Microsoft and joined the government. Um, but I thought, oh, you know, that's that's the right thing to do. A for because I was interested in what I was going to learn by working in the government sector, uh, and also I really um, wound up and loved the purpose of growing businesses, which is what NZT does, grows New Zealand businesses internationally. Um, and I, what I've discovered in government is that it's full of people like that mm-hmm. who are maybe hopelessly idealistic and naive, but I actually think they're actually just genuinely good people. And too often we talk about the faceless, nameless bureaucrats. I remember. About a year into the job, I was watching the news one night and it said the, the minister tonight was meeting with his, his officials to, to tell them about something. I went, hang on, that was me. Oh. <laughs> and then it made some disparaging comment about, you know, middle tier government officials. I went, hang on, that was me. And it was a bloody good meeting. You know, like, and we added some real value. So I, was, I got a little bit um, interested in that. But anyway, I've learnt so much from that, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, and yes, as you say, that it gives me the opportunity. Also, working in government, it's, it's potentially slow-moving, but it has big impact, you know, so you can look across the entire of the sector and go, right, we really want to have an impact for exporters or something like that. And you probably will, but it won't, won't be fast. Um, and that's just the nature of government. And a lot of people would have heard of NZTE and yeah. kind of be reasonably aware of what it does, yeah. um, especially around the exporting tech businesses that, you know, there's been a big push on that you yeah. were, you were a really big part of. Yeah. There. Oh, that was cool. When I when I joined, like, you know, Pete, the CEO, I said, what do you want to do? And he said, well, yeah, we want to grow the tech sector and we want to also professionalise NZTE and bring some of the, some of, but not all of, the corporate sort of thinking that you that you and others, because there was about five of us, six of us. That, um, so we kind of turned NZTE into more of a consulting organisation under Pete's guidance and it was quite an amazing um, period of time. Yeah. And I think, yeah, a lot, a lot of people will be able to kind of have an, a picture in their head of that. But then New Zealand story that you've yes. become the CEO of. Yes. It's a really cool beast. Don't tell, us, tell everyone no. I want my job. It's the coolest <laughs> yeah. job out there. Yeah, tell us what that role is because oh. that, that's like a dream role, right? Well, it's for, again, for me it is. Yeah. It's like so the New Zealand, it's a New Zealand story group, government organisation where we are funded by the taxpayer. And our role is to grow the brand of New Zealand globally. So we're, we're, we're here to think about what does the world think about us and how can we uh, increase their positive perceptions of New Zealand for the purpose of then making the, the brand more valuable, making our products and services and our people and everything more valuable. Um, so we sit alongside or we're actually funded by Tourism New Zealand and NZTE and about six government agencies all put the money in um, because they all see that we, we need something bigger than any one of them. I say bigger because it makes me feel like I'm like this umbrella organisation. Actually, we're a tiny pimple compared to those big organisations. But anyway, we're there to be the brand guardians for the country. 
So, for example, we're thinking about, you know, what is what is the world, how can we un- get the rest of the world to see our products and services and our technology and our history and our culture as valuable, uh, not just New Zealand as a beautiful place to visit. Mm. There's nothing wrong with being a beautiful place to visit. We're very lucky um, that we've got that brand already. But just being out there for 100% Pure or the place The Hobbit was filmed is not, you know, it's not indicative of the the breadth of what we have to offer the world. So our job as as an organisation, there's only about 20 of us, is to change global perceptions or to keep evolving global perceptions. Yeah, cool job, by the way, and and also to be able to, as I, I have had a bit to um, bit of interaction with that kind of area, working on the See Tomorrow First oh, yeah, um, cool. pro- pro- program, right? And yeah. so that was really interesting. That was a um, program for the tech sector to be almost like a hundred percent pure story that sits above yeah. that everyone can kind of um, yeah. draw from. Theory. And then in in the first bit of research around that, like you're saying about how people see New Zealand, it was so interesting. Like people do see New Zealand as being, um, you know full of nice people and empty spaces and yeah. oh there's some mountains and there was some filming done yeah. there and oh I'd love to visit it one day and that's all nice but then tech doesn't help you at all does it if you think no. about tech you think about you know a place where great tech comes from is probably the opposite of all those yeah, things yeah. right and so <laughs> it's a so bunch of office blocks in Tel Aviv busy <laughs> metropolis of people who are just take no prisoners yeah, and yeah. you know bustling and over industrialized yeah. and um, oh, I don't know if I'd like to go and spend time there no, and, that, and that's I mean that's so that's that's the the sort of square the circle that's what we're trying to achieve is how do you how does the brand of New Zealand be known for innovation and technology and culture and innovation, all that sort of stuff, as well as it's not a, it's not a, 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 an or. Um, and the Sea Tomorrow First is a really good example of that. Exactly the kind of logic model that sits behind it is that you have an overarching story, which is that New Zealand is a place that cares. The very simple version of our our brand is that we're, we're a place where care for people and connection to place is what drives us. So it drives our ingenuity. And so we're not we're not just doing you know, interesting tech for the sake of it. We're doing tech that actually has meaning and purpose for the world. And so the See Tomorrow First is sort of the brand sort of architecture for the tech sector because it's all about this invitation to see a better tomorrow, to see, a, you know, a kind of a purposeful technology. Um, okay, I'm getting very brand. Yeah. Sorry out there for these <laughs> no, about not so... brand marketers, but, um, and I'm not either, by the way. I got the job and then I quickly Googled, what's brand marketing? Um, but I'm really believing it now. Yeah, and it's, it's, we, I see us, our organisation as the long-run strategy, and in the, in the meantime, short-term strategies, which are things like campaigns and tourism campaigns and, you know, um, export and investment, they have to go out there every day and do a campaign and then we sit across the whole thing and go, right, well, how's, where's that leading to us? You know, what's the kind of brand that we're trying to build for the country? And how can, like, individual businesses, like if you're a business and you're exporting and you want yeah. to, you know, here's a horrible word, but leverage the yes. New Zealand story in your marketing, like yeah, leverage yeah. the fact you come from Aotearoa, like how, how do you help equip just yeah. normal businesses that don't have massive resources to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big part of what we do, by mm-hmm. the way. It, we, we are there as a public service, so we work with um, not only just exporters, but definitely, and it, but also people who are looking for investment. We look for, with with diplomats and pe- anyone that's sort of working internationally, education providers, etc. We have it like you know, very tactically the sort of very tangible things are things like a toolkit of videos and graphics and imagery and B-roll footage that they can then use in their own marketing. So quite a lot of smaller companies will just use our stuff. Mm. You're almost guaranteed you've seen some of our stuff because people blend it into their own content all the time. So, you know, instead of going, you can't afford to go and do a film shoot with drones and stuff, we probably can, or we can at least get that footage for you. Mm. Then we also do a whole lot of our own creation of stories. So we tell, you know, particularly in social media, we'll, we'll talk about New Zealand's history with, you know, women's liberation, with um, our, our social licences, the way that we work with the environment. So we tell stories internationally, they get broadcast, and either we get media, paid or earned media, um, or they'll be on social. And then we do an enormous amount of market research, and again, we give that away for free. So New Zealand companies, if you want to know what's the German perceptions of New Zealand post-COVID, we'll have all of that stuff on our website. So you don't have to go and do that market research. Mm. So it's that kind of thing that's very tactical all the time. And there's been quite a shift, eh? Because I remember years ago, Dion Nash, he, um, yeah. you, you know, ex-cricketer, founder of Triumph and Disaster. He all had round this good man. Great man. He had this great bit of advice that was, you know, if you're a Kiwi startup, 
his advice, this is you know going back quite a few years, yeah, 10, yeah. 10, 10, 12 years, go make it in LA because it's the same amount of kind of flying and difficulty as going to Australia. Yeah. And if you've made your moisturizer brand happen in LA, people in Australia go, wow, that must be cool. But if you come from New Zealand, <laughs> they go, oh, what's this? You bunch of sheep shaggers. I'm not taking your moisturizer. And now that's kind of changed the way. Changed. And isn't that and that's interesting? It's not over a lot of, I'm lot cool of time. Down and t- and fill yeah. it. Mind you, that was that's an outer. No. Even Neon would probably know that now. That yeah. the global perceptions of New Zealand have shifted remarkably mm. in the last ten years, but definitely in the last three or four. Um, which is that we New Zealand is definitely perceived as a as an aspirational brand, as a place, a country that people aspire to visit or or learn from, or even, or that they like the people. And, and it happens faster than we thought it was going to do. And that, we're not claiming credit as New Zealand's story, um, because it's not us, it's the people that do the work themselves. Uh, but, yeah, you know, the brand of New Zealand, for example, we just had some research done by an independent um, group a few months ago, is worth about a quarter of a trillion US dollars. So if it was a company brand and they put it on the balance sheet, it would be sit there at about a quarter of a trillion, which is much more than McDonald's brand mm. um, or BMW, or one of those ones. So we, as a country, have this really strong brand, and not just now for tourism or for, you know, kind of outdoorsy stuff, but actually in areas like the tech sector, because mm. the, the brand is bigger than, and it's exactly what we're trying to do by the way, bigger than just that beauty. It's also around trustworthiness and and good, you know, honesty and uh, and adventurousness and kind of this different way of looking at the world. Yeah, a little bit purposeful and progressive, but yeah. not necessarily super politically progressive like in that way, but yeah. kind of at the front of things, and right? we're lucky. We've got these amazing people that have come from New Zealand over the, you know, forever, through our whole history. But if you look at just in the last few years, you've got your Tikers and your Lords and your Lydia Co. and people like that. The people that are out there that are globally known as New Zealanders are just great examples of the kinds of values we, we espouse as a nation and, and that reinforces yeah. those positive perceptions. Because it's kind of cool, eh? Because about five years ago, you know, people would say, well, what what do, what do people overseas think about us? And generally the answer was, well, they don't often. No, but yeah. now, now, there's been a really, yeah. like you say, a really we, big shift in the last have, five years. We still have to make sure we're relevant. Yeah. You know, like we can't rest on our laurels. In fact, you know, the research we did just a few months ago out of COVID has said, oh, we've got to be careful we don't sort of drop back into, mm. um, uh, you know, uh, Anonymity, but the COVID period has actually net net helped us out, you know, and, and no, obviously nothing negative about what's what the, the tragedies that went through COVID for the whole world, but on the whole, New Zealand's brand came through that relatively strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's through, you know, the, our, the way we behaved, not just our leadership, but also us as a country. Um, but there's also lookouts, you know, when I look, we look through the research data, you'll say actually some countries perceive us as a little bit still expensive and closed, and we've got to really get that brand out there. So there's there's always work to be done. But on the whole, if you're a New Zealand organisation, not just an exporter, but anyone who's trading internationally, it's now, you know, go back to the sort of Dion Nash story, you no longer have to pretend you're from America. You actually go out there quite proudly. In fact, Australia is one of the biggest shifts we've, we've yeah, yeah. seen. It's huge, Australian it? perceptions of New Zealand are at all-time high. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really fantastic. Yeah. Um, we've got to be careful. We're not the ones that reinforce negative stereotypes about ourselves, actually, in Australia. Yeah, like, yeah. We go over there and we start going, oh, yeah, bloody far lap and, you know, crowded house. And they go, what are you on about? You guys are great. Don't have this big chip on your shoulder. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and, and Australia's about three nudges further forward in the being positive about yourself anyway. Yeah, yeah, we love yeah, to right. talk ourselves down. We so, could yeah. learn from, uh, a lot of times learn from them, yeah. And part of that journey into these, um, you know, big government organisations has also been a bit of a journey into tikanga and rail yes. for you, eh? Yeah, definitely. Tell us about that and how's that kind of, um, how's that been for you personally? Oh, it's, I've loved it. What a journey, what a wonderful journey. If you're out there listening and you have not started your journey into understanding our country culture, then I'd encourage you to do it and, and not be scared of it. It's not a, it's not a, a or B, it's an and situation. I was lucky to be brought up in Whanganui, um, small town in in the North Island here, and went to a school that actually had about a 50% Māori role. So I was always around the Māori culture, but I didn't appreciate that at that age. And we learned that I owe a little bit at school, but I was rubbish. Uh, and also had a terrible teacher used to wrap your knuckles if you got something wrong. So it wasn't a great learning environment. And it was only years later, I was living in Singapore, actually, and doing a lot of work around Southeast Asia, going to the Philippines a lot for work. And in those interactions with those cultures, they were very curious about New Zealand's culture because it was just becoming clearer, I think it's becoming clearer to the world that we're not just European country, a little mini England at the bottom of the world, we're something different. And they were asking me all these questions that I couldn't answer, and I felt quite embarrassed. Mm. 
um, that I didn't know more about our own cult- country culture. So when I, one of the reasons I when I went back into um, came back to New Zealand and worked for NZTE, I loved it. It's because NZTE, like many government agencies, has been on a big journey of understanding how culture fits into the organisation and what's our obligations, if you want to look at it that way, through the treaty. But actually, that's the bad way to look at it. It's much mm-hmm. more like, what's the opportunity? Mm-hmm. And through the New Zealand story in particular, we know that the the culture of New Zealand is very attractive to the rest of the world. Um, uh, it's it's People are curious about our multiculturalism. They're curious about um, the values that, those, that that brings to the table. Uh, and so I've been lucky enough. I've been learning that I, I'm not great at it, but I, you know, I give it a good solid go. And um, and we've got a Maori advisory group who helps us out as part of New Zealand Story, mm-hmm. um, who are some really you know amazing um, people. And the whole country's on a bit of a journey. So like, I feel like we're just part of mm-hmm. part of a great wave that's moving along. But what I can say is empirically, you go back to the data. Internationally, the brand of New Zealand and the brand and the Māoridom and what that adds to it is only for our positive benefit. Mm, it's what makes us special it's and unique awesome. in the world. It is, yeah. it is, and we're so lucky to have it. And um, and also, just personally, as you go through a little bit more understanding of culture, and you learn language and you learn things like that, you learn how rich that stuff is. Mm. It's like poetry, you know. Māori language is poetry. You know, the concepts that that are hard to talk about in English but easy to talk about in Māori and vice versa. Um, and so the whole, the, you know, being very open with your kind of values and that sort of stuff is just built into the language. You have no choice, you know, in Māori culture. So it's actually quite a cool thing to do. Yeah, it's so cool. And mm. one quick little thing to touch on. Um, we've, we've gone a bit long, but please um, please oh. excuse us if you're taking, having to go for another lap yeah, around the, the block. take the for the walk <laughs> a bit longer. <laughs> um, the, the SOS business thing yeah. that was um, was a magic thing. Tell me about that quickly. Oh, yeah, that was another one of my crazy project thing things that you mentioned earlier. So, again, it goes back to that. This was post-cancer. So my I, I'm just always alert to, like, how can I make a difference? What can I do better? Um, which has got me involved in lots of things. You know, the Ice House is another one, et cetera. But um, that one was a great – that was good because that was – when COVID first hit, I was, like, all of us feeling a little bit, oh, no, what's the – you know, uncertain, concerned. And I – you know, you can read the longer story, but the short version is um, set up this little website that was selling um, vouchers for uh, hospitality, particularly cafes and bars and that sort of thing. And it was a charity. So, you know, all the money that came in went straight to those businesses. In fact, you know, I didn't, we set up in a real hurry. Like we say, we, it was me, my wife, Catherine going, what are you doing this for, Dave? Not another stupid idea. Um, and then I had some lovely people come in um, and joined and helped in. And we ended up with a whole lot of volunteer people. Um, but essentially, People out there in the world who were locked at home would buy a voucher for a coffee, five bucks, twenty bucks, whatever, and then that money would go to the to the cafe that they chose, and then later they could um, pick it up. And it was just it, we know, it was amazing. All we were doing was facilitating, you know, goodwill from people by having this website. And because I was an ex techie, I kind of knew roughly what to do. Uh, and because I knew some people in the media, I kind of got a bit of publicity. And so that kind of fueled it. And in the end, it's done over four million now in, in sort of facilitating these sorts of things. And still going today, actually. It's bizarre. I had a phone call this morning from a cafe who's still using it all the time. It's great. That's so awesome. And that, yeah. yeah, that was a moment, right, where people really, when you know, when unprecedented times and everything's yeah. locked down and people were making some really conscious choices about the kinds of businesses yeah. and the kinds of things they wanted to see continue yeah. in the world. And, you know, one of my favourite bits of Instagram um, wisdom is, you know, every dollar you spend is a vote for the kind of world you want to live in. <laughs> and at that moment, like, it really, it really was. And people were sending these kind of like yeah. vouchers, but they were little love letters going, hey, I want to see you doing more of this, you it's, know. Yeah. <laughs> You're an important part of my community. And funnily enough, that's exactly the feedback we got from cafe owners was exactly that yes, the money's important. In fact, it's critical because we've got to pay the rent and the you know the coffee machine lease or whatever. But actually, the fact that we now know that there are hundreds of people in our community who live in our neighbourhood who want to see us still there, mm. you know, after lockdowns and stuff, that was the big kind of um, aha moment for us all. Was we're going, oh wow, we're just you know allowing people to support each other. Yeah, it's nice and like yeah. lots of um, experiences. You wouldn't hope to have to go through the experience no. to get it, but there's good things in there, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and um, in the end, actually, that I mean, that as I say, that thing st- still keeps going. Um, a, a US-based company came along and 
bought it off me. I say that bought it in inverted commas because we did it for no money, but they invested back into They put the money, they were going to buy it off me and they put it back into the money, as, uh, into the thing as, as vouchers. They're still going and, they, and they're helping businesses like, you know, finance new kitchens and stuff like that too. So it's actually worked out to be a really positive thing. Oh, what a magic thing to, yeah. to add to the world. And as a kind of final thought, like what will success be for you in kind of work and work and life, as you've probably thought <laughs> quite deeply on it, and have spent you know the last number of years kind of acting very inten- yeah. with great intention about that. I'll loop right back to that bit that says they have no plan whatsoever. Um, well, I mean, I know roughly the trajectory and the direction of where I'd like to be. I want to have do things that have an impact. Um, where I think my skills can have an impact for others, and it sounds very puritanical. I sound like I'm, you know. Um, very holy, but I'm not. It's purely that, you know, having gone through the experience of cancer and really feeling like that was it. And by the way, I should have said earlier, having thousands of people support me and give me beautiful messages and some, and actually financially support the the crazy cost that it um, that it, it ended up costing to go on this trial. I feel this kind of sense of real obligation, but in the in the positive sense, not like oh god, I have to do something, but much more like wow, okay, I feel like I've got this opportunity. So whatever I do, and, and a New Zealand story is a really good example. I love it. It's having an impact for for New Zealand. It's having it's growing our country in a way that will add value for lots and lots of people, not just exporters or the people that that use our stuff. Um, similarly with the other things I do. Um, but also, um, personally, I love the creativity. Go back to the whole business is boring thing. I think business is incredibly creative. I've learned that through my career is that, that right the early things I learned about creativity are the things that are actually most valued in my job now. And it's so bizarre to me that, you know, those years of standing on stages trying to work out how to tell stories to people is now my job. That's mm-hmm. that not only someone's paying me for, the government's paying me for. Who to thunk? Yeah. You know. So more of that would be great for a while, I think. Ah, that's so magic. Well thank you so much for sharing your story today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you, David Downs, oh. CEO at the New Zealand Story Group. Well, kia ora, thank you. So thank you to David Downs for sharing his story, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this podcast happen, like our producer, Samuel Robinson. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. En hora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. It was hosted by Simon Pound, produced by Tiaihe Butler, with series production from Jane Yee. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.